The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. What are the most successful change leaders of today doing to deliver great results? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is Kate Ebner. Good morning, and thank you for joining me this morning. Today, my guest is Randy Bass. He's the Vice Provost for Education and Professor of English at Georgetown University, where he is also leading the Designing the Futures Initiative and the Red House Incubator for Curricular Transformation. For 13 years, Randy has been the founding executive director of Georgetown Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship, and today we're going to explore what new designs really means and and what the future of education might look like. Good morning and welcome, Randy. Uh, Good morning, Kate. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm delighted that you're here, and I had the benefit of hearing you present last year um, to the... um, the Arizona State University, Georgetown University Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. That's kind of a mouthful, but that group absolutely loved the presentation that you gave, and and I think you really um, opened up some new thinking for um, these future university presidents who are in that program. So I'd love to begin this morning, Randy, by just asking you to share for the audience a little bit about your background and the Maybe just give us a sort of a snapshot. Well, I trained as an English professor with a specialty in 19th century American literature. And I did my training at Brown University in the 1980s. And there happened to be going on at that time some very early work around multimedia and early Apple technology. And through a series of misunderstandings, I became involved in that work, and it completely changed my uh, whole orientation toward teaching, learning, knowledge. And so by the time I got to Georgetown as an assistant professor of English, I was quite involved in also thinking about how new technologies could change the way we teach and learn. Um, So once I got tenure, I really kind of focused myself more on that track than on being a traditional English professor, and that's very much what led me to where I am right now. You know, I am so aware from, you know, work that I'm doing, some of it that touches the work that you're doing, that um, this is a really critical time in higher education and a time when, you know, the traditional models of delivering education are changing, when there's great pressure to make education more affordable and more accessible, and where technology is changing, not only how we how we learn and how we communicate, but also how we work. And I'm curious to hear you talk for a moment, if you could, about um, what's the opportunity 
that's available to us right now. What, when you, when I, I notice in your description that uh, there's this phrase that Randy Bass works at the intersection of new media technologies and learning. Tell us what the world looks like at that intersection. Well, for any of us who've been working at that intersection for 20 or 30 years, it does feel like we've been perennially on the verge of a major revolution for all that time, and mm-hmm. the revolution has not really yet happened. So yeah. um, so this is all with that caution, but it does feel like we're at a different moment here for a variety of reasons. But I think that the first and foremost, the opportunity um, is one of the ways that I'd like to think of it is to ask ourselves the question, what kind of uh, an education, let's say university education or even a liberal education, which I'll talk about more in a minute, is possible at this moment in history that has never been possible before? What's the unique opportunity at this moment? And that's a very different question than just asking how do we incorporate new technologies into learning? Because it allows us to sort of step back and, and ask what are the needs of our society for education, what do we think it means to learn and be a well-educated person, and then what's the capability of the new environment we find ourselves in. So I think that first and foremost, the opportunity is that we now can think about educating a much broader, more diverse group of people who need and want higher education in ways that we've traditionally associated with what I'll call liberal education than we've ever been able to before. We can make education accessible to to a very diverse population in potentially very substantive ways, in ways we've never been able to before. And we can do it in ways that potentially uh, is affordable and continuous and personalized. So all of that will take a long time to sort through and to do in a way that really does preserve the best of what we know about learning. And I'm sure we'll get into what that means. But I think that that's the, really the core of the opportunity. We have more people than ever who need a higher education. Uh, we have more means than ever to deliver that. And uh, we have more pressure than ever to deliver it at lower costs than we've been delivering higher education. And the opportunity might be that we're at a moment where we can put those three things together. That's great. Thank you for articulating that. I'm struck by what you said about um, how it looks at this sort of intersection and the fact that it's you know, it's been a couple of decades or more <laughs> since you've first started to work from this um, from this perspective, and um, it seems in many ways at Georgetown and I'm sure beyond that your work has really come into the fore, as people have in a way perhaps caught up with what we're calling the opportunity in our conversation. Could you tell us a little bit about how you work, and specifically, I know that you are. Um, you're in charge of the Red House, you know, curriculum incubator, and that that's a specific Red House on the Georgetown campus, and it's also a place where some very special things are happening. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Well, the, the context for the Red House is an initiative, uh, if I can sort of start there, called Designing the Futures. And that was something that was launched uh, by our president, provost, uh, and our faculty um, a few years ago, two years ago, um, actually almost to the day, um, to ask the question of what might a Georgetown education look like in 5, 10, or 15 years from now, uh, given what was going on in the larger environment 
how the landscape was shifting, uh, the kind of experimentation that was going on by for-profits and others around higher education, many of whom claimed that not change higher education from inside, that it could only be changed from outside. Um, we decided that we could at least ask questions and be actively experimenting uh, with aspects of our own model uh, in ways that um, where we could be in control of how uh, we might be responding to that environment. So we launched this initiative called Designing the Futures, and it's, it's futures is plural precisely because we don't know exactly what the future is going to look like. But the idea was not just to talk, not just to speculate, but to actually act and experiment and to work with faculty who had ideas for uh, ways of accomplishing the kind of teaching and learning that we most value, but in ways that pushed against one or more of the constraints of the ways that we do business. So in order to facilitate that work, we you know, moved into a space where we could meet with faculty and uh, other staff to, to brainstorm designs and then bring ideas from mere ideas to prototypes and pilots. And the space we moved into was this red townhouse that was across the street from the main part of campus that's come to be known as the Red House. So it's in the Red House where we work with, uh, you know, first faculty, but also students and staff um, to incubate uh, new ideas for new programs. Some of them are courses, some of them are minors or majors, and then we're starting to think about some things at the level of the degree um, that that really press on the things that we most value, but do it in ways that, uh, again, like I say, push against one or more of the constraints of our model. Let me just give Can you I, a couple of examples. Oh, sure, go yeah. ahead. Oh, I was, I was actually just going to ask you to give me a couple of examples, so go right ahead. Sure. Yeah, so um, uh, cause what, so what I mean by constraint uh, is, you know, the, the kind of structures that we're all very used to. You know, uh, the sort of one-size-fits-all, 15-week semester, most courses are three credits. Uh, the credits are tied pretty closely to seat time and contact time, pretty much work on a nine-month calendar, pretty much work on a four-year degree. Um, so that's, those are the kinds of you know, boundaries of the model that we're looking at. So some of the experiments might be how, you know, we, we've, one of our successful pilots was to create a course offered during the summer to students who are spread around the world doing social justice work um, by themselves with organizations out in the field. We've created an online course that brings all of them together online in a single community. They spend all summer reflecting with each other on the impact of their work. And every two and a half weeks, they take a different skills-based module, how to work with community partners, intercultural communication, working with data, et cetera, um, that would strengthen their work on the ground. So even that at the course level, that that's saying that for the first time now, you don't have to have a choice between taking curriculum or being out in the field, let alone somewhere else in the world, that you can be, you can be out doing work, um, you know, anywhere on the globe and be part of an online community that's making sense of that. Uh, you can be gone during the summer, but still making progress on your degree. So that's one Thank very you. concrete example. That's a great example. Um, and I know that I know that there are many kinds of ideas you're exploring. Are there other examples? We have a number of um, new programs and interdisciplinary programs that are trying to imagine how some of the credits that students earn might be uh, earned directly for work 
and achievement and not tied specifically to courses. So um, this ranges in quite a number of different ways. Um, but uh, for example, one uh, program in design and communication, we're exploring um, creating a studio-like format where students and faculty would work on specific design and communication projects. And when the projects get to a certain point of completion, the students could submit them for assessment and the credits might be assessed directly for the project. And that would not be tied to any particular course and it would be at varying rates and speeds. Other programs are looking at, say, something like a minor, where um, a third of the credits for the minor might be assigned to a sustained project out in the community, a social entrepreneurship project, working with a community partner, developing a business plan for a nonprofit. And it would not be tied necessarily to a course, but it would be students working in a sustained way on a continuous project. And when there was work that could be assessed, it would be assessed and directly awarded credits. You know, we don't see that um, whole degrees will shift in this way, but we are asking the question if one of the things that might distinguish um, a, a Georgetown degree in the future is that some percentage of nearly every student's degree is not, uh, uh, the, the course, the credits are not derived from coursework, but actually derived from work achieved, sorry, work achieved, you know, at the very intersection of theory and practice. I think that there are many elements to what you've been describing in each of the examples you've given. You know, one is the, you know, the, the first example, the ability to work out in the field, but in community, in, in conversation with others and with um, the opportunity to learn together, um, highly relevant um, skills and knowledge that will help you really on the ground, you know. And then the others are great examples also of this sort of flexible way of um, of learning and having credit assessed, you know, different than uh, old structures. And you know, as I prepared for our conversation today, I've, I've um, you know, I think anyone who's interested should go and look at um, the work that you're doing. And, you know, I know that Designing the Futures is uh, taking a, you know, taking a, a, a stake in the ground and said, okay, we're going to be doing experiments to really look at how we could design this future and let's try a few things. And so it's very interesting to hear you give these examples and talk about them. I know that, you know, one article that I have read is called Five Pump Priming Ideas. And what I liked about this particular article is it it seems to give those of us who are interested in learning about this sort of a... Um, sort of a headline level of understanding about the kinds of experiments you're doing. Could you just talk for a moment about those ideas? Sure. And and the idea of the five pump priming ideas was that uh, when we started to launch the initiative, um, we asked faculty, if we did this kind of visioning initiative, what, what would you want it to look like? And uh, they said quite clearly uh, two things. One was, uh, give us something to react to. Um, uh, we don't want to just talk. And second, um, we don't want this to be just blue sky dialogue about the future, but let, we want to be able to do something. Let's let's put some things into action. So the five pump priming ideas was the give us something to respond to piece. And uh, we wrote that to um, invite the campus to think outside of our, our model. And uh, the five ideas there um, were along the lines of what I've been you know talking about, like how could you imagine um, you know, scaling mentored learning so that some of the work that students would do is not in classrooms, but out in the field. 
but how would we be able to scale that in a way that would be affordable? Or how might we play with new um, flexible credit structures where some courses might be uh, less than three credits in one and one and a half credit modules, um, or perhaps some courses would span greater amount of time. You know, but that flexibility would allow us to think about um, what are the real rhythms of teaching and learning. Are some, could some subjects be taught more modularly? Does technology allow us to teach some dimensions of subjects more modularly, allow students to move at different paces? And so all of the ideas were along those lines. Uh, work, learn, you know, how could we reimagine the relationship between work experience and learning? And, um, and then I, um, the, one of the ideas was also to propose, are we at a point where we could think about what the four-year degree looks like? And one of our major concerns is the unsustainable rising costs of private education. The cost of private education has outstripped inflation for at least two decades, and middle-class wages have stayed more or less flat. So we can't continue to see that divergence. So one of the questions was, could we create a different kind of value for four years of tuition? Could we imagine for more or less four years of tuition having someone leave with both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree? I think there's a lot of questions about this. And, you know, we have some designs for our integrated four-year bachelor master's, but we're really still in the dialogue stage. But but I think we want to ask, you know, are we seeing... uh, not just the acceleration of the bachelor's degree, but the evolution of what we even think a bachelor's degree stands for. My guest today, Randy Bass, is the Vice Provost for Education at Georgetown University, where he leads the Designing the Futures Initiative. We're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, we'll hear more from Randy about where this all is going. This is Kate Ebner. You're listening to Inside Transformational Leadership. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email itlprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network.
listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome back. This is Kate Ebner, and thank you for joining us today. My guest is Randy Bass, who's leading Designing the Futures of the University, an amazing initiative that's really looking at the future of education. And before the break, we were talking about um, the nature of this initiative and the kinds of experiments that it is doing and beginning to do. And we talked a little bit about five pump priming ideas. And just for the sake of those listening, those are flexible curricular and teaching structures. We've been talking about that competency-based learning, sort of um, different approach to learning, expanded mentored research, new work and learning models, and a four-year combination bachelor's and master's degrees. And those ideas have been um, put out there to be considered and to be explored as part of this Designing the Futures of the University Initiative. Randy, you also did a great job of setting some context for us about why now is the time when universities and colleges need to really be rethinking and thinking about the future of education. And I'd love to just come back into the conversation with, you know, a question for you about, you've been now looking at these issues for a long time, although designing the futures is much newer. Um, what do you, what do you see happening? And I'm curious for those of us, especially as a mother of college kids myself, I'm curious what you see as the, um, you know the the I don't I don't want to say something as broad as the future of higher education, but maybe like where do you think we need to go in terms of how we're approaching education for our our, our for people really of all ages? I'm sure it goes beyond young people. I think that there is an incredibly interesting uh, growing uh, tension between the tools that are now available to all of us in our everyday lives for finding information, for learning things, for connecting to people who do particular things. We're just swimming in now an ecosystem where if if you're interested in something, you can find other people who are interested in it. If you want a piece of information, you can find that piece of information. So all through our lives, we can just act and learn and the capacity to learn on their own is, has never been more amazing or richer or available to everyone. I think our formal schooling structures are, are changing in response to that very slowly. So I have two children. One is in college. One's junior in high school. And, you know, most of their schooling lives, they're taught to be relatively passive relatively focused on rules and accomplishing things, not often being let in on the, the game with the teachers of why they're learning what they're learning. I think there's this kind of growing divide between how we're schooling people and the way people are learning almost every waking minute or potentially every waking minute. So I think that, you know, I, my, my sense is the future of education is that um, we future of higher education is that it will become a space in which um, this explosion of options for people will help to make people more in control of the way they educate themselves. It'll become more 
personalized. Um, students could potentially become, you know, uh, more intentional agents of their own learning. Um, it will be less as much that you just pick a place to go and you go there for four years, make some choices inside that structure. But I think there are so many choices available to people that, um, you know, I almost hesitate to use this term, but I think more and more people will become entrepreneurial in their learning because there's going to be so many more options for putting uh, an education together, both before a bachelor's degree and for a lifetime. So I think, you know, the future of higher education in general is more varied, more personalized, more fluid, and lifelong. Thank you. That's a really great answer and very helpful and clarifying. Um, and I'm wondering, as I'm, as I'm listening to you, given that, that definition, what do you think is the future of the residential college or university? So... That, I think, then, is a really interesting question, and I, I, I think there is a very strong future for it, and certainly at Georgetown, we're counting on that. <laughs> we're building dorms that we don't anticipate turning into condos or office space anytime soon. Um, I think we see that there's something very special about a residential place, and I think that's part of the remix that we will be seeing, is that we recognize that there's something very distinctive about what a university is, and uh, one of the things that makes it distinctive is it's re- it, when it's a residential university is that residential quality. So I think that there will always be a demand for a residential university. I think there's something quite uh, profound that happens when you come to a place uh, and study and problem solve with people who may be very different from you uh, and in a community with a kind of density of um, density of um, talent and resources and backgrounds that is unlike any other institution in our culture. So I think that um, the residential university has uh, absolutely a future. I think the question is whether it remains four years, whether students are coming in and out a little bit more than they are now. Right now, you basically come for four years. Maybe you study abroad for a semester, maybe a year. Um, whether it becomes you become oriented into a community and then you move out, you move back, whether we see this community as being sustained over many years, even beyond the four years, I think there's probably some elasticity there. But I think that the concept of a residential university is is going to persist for a long time. You know, as you're as you're describing that and, and using the word community, I, I make I'm thinking about some of your early comments about people out in the field being able to connect back to a learning community virtually and, you know, the residential college continuing with all of the benefits that it, that it brings to those who participate, but also maybe changing in in terms of the format or the number of years or the, the, the way that you participate in that community um, on, on campus or residentially. And it seems to me that what you're really saying, Randy, is that the very nature of, community of learning is changing along with the vehicles for learning and the formats for learning and even what we understand to be valuable learning. Am I getting that right? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, we need to be very attentive to that. And and in many ways, if you look at youth culture, uh, whether it's our own kids or some of the people who have studied 
um, youth culture on the web, such as Mimi Ito and her group at UCLA, who've done an amazing uh, work for 13 years around something they call connected learning, is that they've tracked uh, young people, many of whom are quite disaffected from school, who have very meaningful communities online with whom they're very engaged. And some of these communities are very large communities, whether they're fan sites or gaming sites or um, other kinds of special interest sites. Um, very um, uh, meaningful um, and purposeful relationships that have been built through online communities. I think we also see, and some of us see it, you know, occasionally through things like Facebook, but I think a younger generation sees it even much more so, the capacity to sustain a sense of community in virtual space. I think there will always be something, or at least for a long time, that's quite powerful about presence, about being in the same room with people. Uh, if you've ever run a virtual project, you know that you can't really get going or do a certain kind of synthesis or conflict resolution unless you're actually in the same room. But you can accomplish a heck of a lot virtually and in between. And I think our whole sense of the fluidity between presence and virtual community um, has already changed, has already changed in very significant ways, in ways that we haven't yet uh, reckoned for its impact on education. So it's finding that new balance, figuring out um, what it means to go out and come back or how one can sustain really important mentoring relationships at a distance through technology and then to both initiate them and and, um, you know, shore them up in, uh, in various ways when you're together and present. But I think that, you know, our lives have already, our everyday lives have already changed in this regard. I just think that formal education has not really fully responded yet. You know, that's, that's reminding me of, um, you know, a, a time last year when my daughter was a senior in high school and I could hear her in her bedroom alone but talking to someone and she was presumably studying well, it turned out that she was indeed studying, but she was studying side by side with her cousin in New Jersey, who was also studying. And they were, you know, they were each in their own place. They were actually studying different subjects, but they were absolutely in community and connected as if they were in person. And I, I remember watching it and thinking, wow, this is um, something we probably dreamed and fantasized about when, when I was young, but here it is, you know, you can be with people when you're not with them. You can learn side by side, you can learn together. And I'm curious, what do you think is most promising Randy of what you're, what you're learning right now when it comes to the creation of meaningful educational models and designs for learning? Where, where do you see a lot of promise? Oh, I think there are, at least two or three big categories of promise. And, and, and I'll just say, because you know, I'm an academic who always has to qualify everything, <laughs> that, that no single tool will have promise unless the whole context in which it's implemented is very thoughtful and it's integrated with faculty and good pedagogical principles. And I think that's been one of the problems that we've been looking for the tool or the right technology when it really is about technology and context. But that being said, um, I think that uh, two or three of the things that really have lots of promise. One is um, what is sometimes referred to as adaptive learning technologies or intelligent tutors. These are data-driven um, learning resources where uh, especially they work especially well around highly structured materials. So say how to learn introduction to statistics or how to learn uh, areas of mathematics that 
students can work with these very rich materials and the system will give them immediate and targeted feedback on every single thing they try. And the system will also track what they are mastering and what they're not mastering. And then if they're working on these materials in the context of a course before class, the faculty member then gets a dashboard of where every student in the class is on every single concept and subconcept. So the faculty member can target uh, his or her uh, lecturing and focus on only those things where people are most struggling. There are some uh, early versions of these kinds of materials. We've uh, one of them that we've used at Georgetown, it's used elsewhere, is around the teaching of statistics that has shown that, in, that students can actually learn more in, in just about half the time um, working with these materials at a talented instructor than they can in a traditional statistics course. So, so this kind of um, personalized learning that's focused on intelligent tutors um, in the right context, um, I think, can be very powerful. Uh, and also very much a part of the solution for opening it up to uh, a much wider range of students to get access to higher education. A couple other things that I think are quite promising, um, something that I've worked on for several years at the national level is around what we call learning portfolios. And this is where students are essentially using an electronic uh, platform to both gather their meaningful work and to reflect on how the different parts of their learning fit together. And again, in the best implementations of portfolios um, at the schools that we've been working with, we've seen um, significant increases in student persistence, graduation rates, uh, certain kinds of learning that correlates to deep learning because we found that this kind of environment that allows students to create an electronic collection and reflection of their work helps them make um, something whole out of all the disparate parts of their education, which they otherwise would experience as just separate courses or even more so compartmentalized curriculum, co-curriculum. So those are two examples of things that uh, we've, we've seen uh, very good effects with data that shows that it actually increases student learning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what does a, a learning portfolio look like? Is it a is it a presentation or a video, or how are students creating those? It's really a, it's a kind of repository of their work that um, also includes a good amount of reflection and the way that they present themselves to the outside world. Parts of a portfolio might be uh, private, uh, it might be semi-private and only open to classes or advisors. And part of it might be a presentation out to the world so that if they're applying for a job, they might have their best work available electronically that someone could look at. But a portfolio is really a, it's really a um, digital uh, platform where students would be able to collect and make linkages among a wide range of their work. Excellent. So it could include Thank video, you. it could include uh, papers, but it, it really is, uh, you know, something like a, it would look something like a personal website, but quite yeah. closely tied to the range, the full range of someone's work in college. Wow, thank you very much. That's a really interesting idea. Anything else? I think you mentioned there might be three ideas that came to your mind. Yeah, the, Is there the one third, more? Yeah, yeah, well, the third area, I think, that just quite uh, broadly promising is um, is the many different tools that we have for moving social learning 
uh, kind of what you were saying about your daughter on the phone, but moving social learning uh, closer to the center of education. And there's you know many different ways that, you know, I mean, it, it, it's not even a single technology. It's just many technologies that um, can support uh, people in discussion spaces, um, but increasingly sophisticated ways to uh, be part of online communities, to create uh, social learning context in connection with a course where you can connect with communities outside, um, to be able to harvest um, discussion boards, for example, um, so people can increasingly teach each other, uh, in some cases, assess each other. Um, so I, I, just this notion that, you know, we know that we learn best when we learn with others for the most part. And we know that, for example, you learn something more deeply when you try to explain it to someone else or teach to someone else. But social interaction and dialogue has not always been at the heart of what, of learning through school, especially formal schooling. And um, one of the uh, really powerful things I think we're seeing is that when you move social learning in connection with other kinds of learning, um, you could actually see this kind of powerful synergistic effect. Let me just share with you one other example. I know my answer is getting long. Here, Great. But, um, there, Great. There's, a, there's a wonderful new program, a wonderful course that's offered out of Arizona State. It's all online called Habitable Worlds. And it's a, it's a science course for non-science majors. So it's a general education course in science. And it's focused on the question of whether there's life on other planets, but a very serious science course. Um, and that online course uh, operates at a pretty large scale, hundreds of students at a time online, but they've put together all these different pieces to make a very high quality experience. So they use simulations, uh, they use effective videos to present content, um, they're using a social media platform, so s students are working through problems and sub-problems together. They're using the kind of data analytics that I described in the statistics course to track students' progress. And then there are faculty and graduate students who serve as teaching mentors. So there's a very strong online human element. And so what's most interesting about Habitable Worlds and other programs like that is it shows the power that when we take all these different pieces, the data, the social, the ability to visualize things, the ability to create simulations in digital space, and the human element, if you put them together thoughtfully, in many ways, that's the most promising thing. It's not a single technology. It's the combination of two, three, four of the things that we have at our disposal. Thank you so much. That is a fascinating example. And I, um, I think you've done a beautiful job of illustrating the potential of these new technologies and new ways of thinking about education. My guest today, Randy Bass, is the Vice Provost for Education at Georgetown University, where he leads the Designing the Futures Initiative. We're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, we'll hear more from Randy about where this all is going. This is Kate Ebner. You're listening to Inside Transformational Leadership. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email ITLprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome back once again. We've been talking with Randy Bass about the very interesting work he's doing at Georgetown University through the Designing the Futures initiative. We've been talking about the way that this work is changing how we're thinking about um, education, what it looks like, um, the experience students are having, and even the kind of knowledge that people are are learning. And we're also talking about the future of higher education and how this intersection of new technology, new educational models, and new problems to solve in the world are really creating a lot of uh, possibilities, uh, fresh ways of thinking about education. You know, there's a quote that I um, I took, Randy, from this the website um, that, that you are part of, um, the Designing the Futures website. There's not been a moment more full of promise for higher education in the present. The significance of this moment for Georgetown is tremendous as we seek to make, meet the urgent challenges before us with innovative strategy and the extraordinary resources of our community. And this is Jack DeJoya, the president of Georgetown University. Um, and I, I think we've been... I've been really working to to help those who are listening understand kind of where we've been, where we are, where we're going when it comes to higher education. And we really talked about the promise of three big ideas uh, right before the break. So coming back into it, I would love to um, pick up where we left off and actually talk a little bit more about the balance of um, virtual learning uh, live and in-person learning, and some of these boundary-pushing ideas we were talking about, like mentored research. So having given you this big, broad opening, I want to hand it back over to you and ask you, what do you think we should know about designing the future of higher education from you know that we haven't covered yet? 
Well, I think that one of the things that we think about all the time is as we explore these new ways to uh, reimagine, you know, parts of the education or to uh, break down some courses into modular units or make use of technologies, is that we still believe very deeply in the, the core values that, you know, animate a place like Georgetown, that animate uh, liberal education. Um, and one of the things that I think is quite interesting is that, you know, we've learned a lot about learning and how people learn effectively in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, one of the really interesting pieces of research that has come out in the last couple of years is a massive survey done by um, a partnership between Gallup and Purdue, um, known as the Purdue-Gallup survey on uh, flourishing and engagement. And they studied 30,000 people. They just came out with some new results as well, um, in which they looked at how satisfied are people at work 20 years out? How, to what degree do people consider themselves to be flourishing and to be engaged in their work and satisfied in their life? And then they tried to track that back to what happened to them in college and to see if there was a correlation between their college education and what happens later in life. What they found was quite, quite stunning in that they found that you are about 75% more likely to be flourishing and engaged in work 20 years after graduating from college if one of these two things happened to you. You had an adult mentor who cared about you and you worked on a sustained project for a semester or longer. If you did both of those things, you were very likely to be flourishing. If you did one of them, you were still more likely to be flourishing. Interestingly, what they found is that if you had either of those opportunities, it really didn't matter where you went, whether you went to a state college or a place like Georgetown, but you were far more likely to have had that experience at a place like Georgetown than public schools and that um, overall, um, you know, only about 13% of students actually had both those experiences and uh, down to the single digits in certain demographics. So, so that's very compelling evidence that something quite close to what we think of as the heart of education really does have a profound effect. And I think that one of the greatest challenges of the next decade or more is not losing sight of the things that seem old-fashioned, things that seem traditional, and to not just write them off as either um, relics of some earlier version of education or write them off because they seem expensive. I think the powerful opportunity of the moment is to imagine what is the new balance or the new remix of how we can make use of new technologies to um, both accelerate and augment some of the foundational learning, uh, use new technologies to create certain kinds of scale of efficiencies we might not have been able to create before. But to do that very much in balance with a portfolio of strategies that are about human interaction, guided mentored learning, uh, really learning how to learn and live in a diversity of people and communities problem solve with the diversity of people around you, collaborate, um, to, to really understand that those are some of the most important things we need to preserve and that it's really about a kind of rebundling, not an unbundling of higher education going forward. You know, as you, as you describe this, I'm struck by um, this word, you know, these words, portfolio and bundling and, you know, many 
options, choosing options in combination with the traditional and the, the new or the groundbreaking, not abandoning one model for the other. And I think in some ways, Randy, I, I'm guessing that that's what makes this fascinating and also challenging is, is understanding, learning which pieces to keep and how to combine them with the new elements and how to, how to um, blend these kinds of opportunities in a way that that leads to, um, uh, you know, I want to say like a solid experience, an experience people really, really appreciate and feel like they've had the had an education, even though there's some of these new elements changing up the way that that education is taking place. And so I, I guess one thing I'm taking away from this is that it's not one answer, it's many. And so this topic of design becomes particularly important. And I would love to hear you talk about that for a moment. You know, how do you, how do you approach curricular design given some of these insights that you're talking about? Well, the way that we approach design is to try to separate what I sometimes think of, that this is what we're doing, is we're trying to separate our core practices uh, the things that we really, that we do that we think really matter and get to the heart of uh, learning from what we might call our habitual structures. So, you know, what is it that we think that we do? And then do we need to be doing it in 15 weeks or for three credits or at this kind of pacing, et cetera? Um, and the design work that we do is very iterative. And one of the reasons that we have the Red House Incubator is that we felt that it's important that people have a space to imagine uh, things that could be viable in a different context. Because, you know, we tend to, in our everyday lives, just we're we're constrained by the way we do things of what we consider to be viable. And so if you can step outside those constraints, many, a much wider range of things seem possible and viable. And so we try to get people to say, well, what is it that you'd really like to do? And just forget about all the constraints at the moment. We'll have plenty of time to come back to those. But what would, what would you like to do? It's like, well, it'd be really great if, you know, students could operate like this, or it'd be really great if we could spend a few weeks in class and a few weeks out in the community, or it'd be really great if my students who got interested in something during the semester could continue that work the following semester and to be able to do it for credit, um, you know, and on and on and on. So we really begin with, you know, just kind of what-if questions. You know, what if you could do this or that? That's really where design starts. In another sense, design also starts as um, one of the people that I've co-taught with for many years, Ann Pendleton-Julian, is a wonderful architect. She says, design really fundamentally always begins with the tensions. Design begins with the conflicts. You're really designing for the, you know, the, the, the tensions that you're trying to resolve for. Even if you're building a house, you're working with gravity and hillsides and sight lines. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I think for us that the main tension that we're trying to deal with is to is to basically ask how do you um, build an education that preserves the things we value most in an environment where those things we value most are the most expensive part of the model, and I think that that ends up being kind of at the heart of the design process is is how to imagine new more flexible structures that make uh, the richest part of learning affordable. And and um, can you say a little bit more about that? You know, um, the 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 things we value most. Let's just describe um, what those are, and and how how do we find a different balance there? 
Well, I think that, you know, in any given experiment or any given pilot, you're um, asking what kinds of support do students need in order to do the difficult work of learning. I think the heart of learning is often about difficulty. And I don't mean that in, you know, sort of some Dickensian schoolmaster way. <laughs> I mean that in a kind of loving way that, you know, mm-hmm. I think um, anyone who ends up being a professor in a certain field is because they fell in love with what's necessarily difficult about that field. Um, or students who undertake projects where they really come to own those projects is because they really embrace that difficulty. So I think what we do is we, we ask, what does it take to support students in doing difficult, sustained work. Is it content? Do they just need to know content? And if it is, do they have to get that from the professor or could they be getting some of that, you know, in a digital format? Um, Is it feedback? And do they need that feedback right away? What kind of feedback? Where do they need to get that feedback? Is it that they need to um, take responsibility for certain kinds of decisions? Um, Could you create environments in which they're they're actually... um, making risky decisions and, you know, in safe ways and learning the consequences of certain kinds of decisions, whether it's an experiment or research project or working with the community. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I think that the design work is really um, where you ask, what is it, what it, to break down, um, you know, what is it that students need and when do they need it? Courses have all those things in them, but we tend to think of them because we've become so naturalized to the concept of a three-credit course and you read stuff and you talk about it in class, you take an exam, you write a paper. We've kind of, uh, it, you know, sort of the layers of learning becomes, you know, cloudier because it's all packaged into this thing. We know what it is. It's called a course. But you, in a sense, you either decompose a course or you decompose what a major is or you decompose what a degree is, and you ask, well, what are all the different things going on, and could we actually imagine delivering them or supporting them in different ways? I really have, we have two minutes, and I have one question, and then, of course, I want you to tell us how we can follow your work and learn more about your work. So my question really quickly is, how are other faculty members responding to the work that you're doing? Are people open to what you're learning? Many are open. There's a wide range of opinion. I think on campus, um, or I should say a response to um, how fast we should be moving, what kinds of things we should be looking at. Um, you know, some of the things that we're looking at are uh, appear on the surface to be challenging the models that they most value. Um, change is uh, not always something that's easy. So I don't want to represent that all the faculty are, you know, completely behind this work because there's a really wide range of opinions, including some people mm-hmm. who are asking hard questions about it. Um, but there's a lot of faculty who are quite excited about one or another piece of it. And I think the more they understand the kinds of, that we're really just trying to find a new context to do the things we most value, that an increasing number of faculty become enthusiastic about the work. You know, it's you know the the longer we talk in this hour, the more questions I have. <laughs> I feel like you've you've shared so much with us, and you know this is a this is a show that I know I'm going to go back and listen to again, so that I can keep learning from some of the distinctions you've given us. How can we follow your work, Randy? Where should we go to stay tuned in to what you're working on? Well, uh, the best source is to uh, go to futures.georgetown.edu. And there we keep a website with 
kind of up-to-date news on what we're working on. And um, you can also sign up there to be on our mailing list for uh, different speaker series and other kinds of things that we produce. So that's, that's really the best way to do that. I want to say thank you for being with us today. This has been very informative and fascinating and puts us, all of us, I think, into to, to a set of new ideas about what it means to be educated and how it's happening. So thank you very much, um, Randy Bass, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Kate Ebner, next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week.